You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Close to 50 million Americans do not have health insurance. Emergency rooms are a safety net and often the first resort for these uninsured patients. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Bill Maloney, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Condell Medical Center and a partner at Infinity Healthcare. Today we are discussing current issues in emergency care. Welcome, Dr. Maloney. Well, thank you very much for having me here. What exactly are the laws with respect to an uninsured patient coming to the emergency room? Well, the law is known as EMTALA, Emergency Medicine Treatment and Labor Act, and that mandates hospitals to see, treat, evaluate every patient that comes in to their, not just through their doors, but actually even comes onto their campus looking for emergency care. And the reason that these laws were put into place was that hospitals were trying to divert these patients because of the fact that they represent a high li- liability for the hospital and uh, a loss leader. Patients have uh, no medical insurance, so they typically cannot pay their bills, and many were presenting with advanced medical conditions because they did not have access to primary care physicians. So uh, they were consuming a large number of dollars uh, at the hospital. The act prohibits hospitals from not seeing these patients, and the hospitals are required to stabilize them to the best of their ability, to what their level of capability is. And um, at that point, then, the hospital can transfer the patient if, uh, if they feel that it's necessary. What happens if the hospital doesn't follow this rule? EMTALA has a big bite. They will come, and typically the local departments of public health will come and do a, an inspection at the hospital, oftentimes the next day. And there are fines in place, not just for the hospital, but for the physicians involved. And they're significant. $50,000 um, is the, the standard fine, both for the emergency physician as well as any physicians on the medical staff that are involved in a particular case where the patient is, uh, is sent away. And on top of that, there have been some legal cases brought upon. Patients will be claiming that because they were not stabilized, uh, that they uh, had their rights violated. So not just only malpractice, but that the physicians violated EMTALA and, and uh, uh, suits are being brought because of that as well. Does this mean that a patient doesn't receive a bill from the hospital in any way, shape, or form if they don't have insurance? I don't know how every hospital handles this, but the hospitals that I've been affiliated with typically have a pretty good idea who's going to not pay their bill. I can tell you in our physician group, there are some uh, patients that we see that we don't even send a bill to. Uh, It costs us more to send a bill and involve a collection agency than what we expect to get back. In general, I believe that the vast majority of the patients are billed, and it depends on the charity care policies of every facility, how, how further that they, they pursue payment on that bill. But a certain uh, large percentage of patients never pay their bill, and at some point you end up just dropping the bill. Now, when we talk about insured patients but managed care, are there ever instances when an insured patient with a managed care company comes to a provider, in other words, a hospital emergency department, which is not a participating provider. Yes, that's uh, something that uh, is a challenge to deal with. We'll have a patient come in, let's say, older woman who falls and breaks her hip, and uh, she may have a uh, Medicare HMO, and I'm told that uh, I have to transfer the patient 
because if she would stay at the facility that I'm at, that uh, her insurance wouldn't cover it. So what I have to do is just approach the patient and their family and explain this to them. I, I can't force them to be transferred. If they want to stay and potentially pay out of pocket, that's certainly their right. But if they want to uh, you know, have the comfort of knowing that their insurance plan will cover it, then I have to put them in an ambulance and transfer them to the facility, you know, which is in their managed care plan. And uh, certainly I wouldn't do that if I felt that medically it was unsafe. But in the, the example I presented, that would be an example of a, a safe transfer that I would feel comfortable with. It's an inconvenience, though. And you're not breaking the law by doing that, meaning basing it on insurance coverage? No, you're not. If I had a an acute MI that we were about to take to the cath lab and a managed care representative called me and said the patient would have to go to another hospital, I, you know, I wouldn't do that. I would consider myself breaking the law if I did that. I would break my own code of ethics if I did that. But otherwise, no, you're not breaking the law. Well, what happens if a patient is taken to your emergency department and says that they really would rather go to another hospital? Are you allowed to transfer the patient without seeing the patient? Well, according to Amtala, you are really supposed to uh, stabilize every patient that wants emergency care. If a patient comes in and doesn't want to be seen by me, that's a tough situation. I would need to document, document, document that the patient is essentially refusing his or her medical screening evaluation. That happens from time to time. Patients will show up and decide they don't want to be seen after all. But then if they wanted to be transferred to another facility, that would really put the emergency physician in a bind because you would really need to know something about that patient and be able to stabilize them before you could even, I think, begin to arrange a transfer for them. So that's a, a real tough situation. If you have just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and with me today is Dr. Bill Maloney, chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Condell Medical Center. We are discussing current issues in emergency care. Dr. Maloney, we have discussed the legal aspects of emergency care. I know that in my specialty, that being general surgery, there is a significant problem around the country of getting on-call physicians, that being general surgeons, to cover emergency rooms because of the rising costs of uncompensated care and the fear of legal liability. Do you see this as a problem? Yes, Mark. It's a, it's a real huge problem, and it, uh, it varies by geographic area and typically by, by the payer mix uh, associated with that geographic area. I feel for my colleagues on the medical staff who are typically obligated to be on call and come in and see a patient that they've never seen before. Just that fact right there, I think, puts us all at a higher liability risk because there's no previous knowledge of the individual. And then the fact that you're doing this, being faced with absolutely getting no compensation in return for your services, uh, has made many physicians shy away from being on call unless it's mandated by their hospital bylaws. If it is mandated, uh, what's happening in many institutions is that the group of surgeons or orthopedic physicians or neurosurgeons are banding together and going to the administration and saying, if you want us to, to take call at your facility, you will have to help us offset some of these costs, either guarantee us uh, Medicare rates of reimbursement for the patients or help us defray our malpractice costs or some other creative um, solution. Has that been successful? Well, from an administrator point of view at the hospital, it's a slippery slope. If you do it for one specialty, then uh, the administrator knows that there's going to be knocking on the door the next day as well, 
from the other specialists. In my experience, the hospitals are doing it based on a shortage in a particular specialty. The one that I'm familiar with has been mainly neurosurgery has been a shortage in my geographic area. And so some, some hospitals are compensating the neurosurgeons, but it's already starting to happen where some of the other specialists, the uh, orthopedic surgeons, the trauma surgeons are asking for compensation as well. And I can understand why. I, I'm fee-for-service myself, and it's a, it's a challenge sometimes. Clearly, there is abuse of prescription and over-the-counter drugs, and patients must come to the emergency room at some point wanting these drugs. Do you find this as a problem? This is a, a big problem in emergency medicine. Uh, yes, we, we hear about uh, people in the news these days that are addicted to prescription medications, and I know that our, my primary care colleagues see these patients in their offices, and we certainly see them in the emergency department. Uh, patients who come in with back pain or headaches or toothaches and, you know, run the gamut of uh, um, non-steroidal medications that they're allergic to and only get relief with certain types of narcotics. And it, it puts you in a bind because you don't know these patients. And, you know, I, I would feel terrible if I if I denied narcotics to someone who truly was in pain. But but how do you know? And And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not so obvious. And in those situations, we usually err on on giving the medication just because, you know, we don't have a pain meter yet. Uh, if you and I could invent that, Mark, we'd be very rich today. But until that objective evidence is available, um, it puts us in a difficult situation. And uh, it's, it's a, a common problem. And I think one of the things that is so stressful about our practice. Do emergency rooms communicate with each other? In other words, if a patient wants narcotics and goes to one emergency room and then goes to another hospital emergency room with the same problem, do you know about this? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, when, when the HIPAA rules came into play, I think healthcare providers were somewhat reluctant to share information. But at the same time, if a patient comes in to uh, my emergency department and is obviously drug-seeking, and then two hours later I get a call from an emergency physician at another facility, I have no problem sharing that information with them because healthcare provider to healthcare provider, it is important uh, regarding the treatment of that patient. So I would say we don't voluntarily call surrounding facilities. We don't post patients' names on the Internet or anything like that. But if another facility calls us regarding the medical care, no matter what the condition was, whether it was abdominal pain or looking for narcotics, we certainly would give that information if it's coming from a reliable source. You know, you're sure it's another physician and healthcare facility. Dr. Maloney, when you decide to transfer a patient to another facility because of a need for a higher level of care, who arranges that transfer, your hospital or the receiving hospital? Uh, there's a little bit of work on both ends. Uh, what typically would, would happen is that I would call the other facility and talk to the accepting physician. Let's say it's a patient who needs uh, an emergent angioplasty, and I'm at a facility that doesn't have that capability. That physician would have to first accept the patient um, because I can't just put the patient in an ambulance and assume that that physician or their cath lab is available. If they do give us the green light, then we are obligated to have the patient consent, number one, and, you know, we explain the benefits of the transfer to them. Uh, number two, we copy all the medical records. Uh, we do call the ambulance. The transferring hospital arranges for the ambulance, and we're actually responsible for the patient's 
care until they reach the next facility. Until that time, if something happens, uh, it's the transferring physician's responsibility. Is that done by direct physician-physician communication, or can the nursing staff arrange for the transfer? It really should be done physician-to-physician because, uh, as we know, things get lost in the translation. And uh, I've found that uh, numerous instances, especially as a medical director, you can alleviate a lot of problems if you just do it physician-to-physician. I want to thank Dr. Bill Maloney, who has been our guest discussing current issues in emergency care. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.